if you think about what happened the last election cycle is we exploited the filter bubble. So the filter bubble basically is I get my sources from people who have very similar point of view and I don't see enough right. of other point of views. And so disinformation comes in and, and, and creates manually a, a set of content that appeals to a pretty large filter bubble. And then they push it and the algorithms push it and rage uh, gets people to click and the algorithm loves rage and, and it just scales. Um, so that was then. Now you can afford to basically go to ChatGPT and make much smaller filter bubbles, choose much smaller filter bubbles and custom create content automatically for each filter bubble with complete disinformation that was scalably produced. That's dangerous. And I believe that's exactly what's going to happen in this next election cycle. AI, a rapidly evolving field that has the potential to transform every aspect of our lives, from the way we work and communicate to the way we think about and solve problems. Join me as I chat with the founders, builders, and innovators in the industry about the latest advancements in AI and how they're changing the way we live, work, and interact with technology. My name is Kevin Rosenquist. Welcome to Zero Shot. My guest today is Omar Tawakal, founder and CEO of Rembrandt, a company that helps content creators seamlessly embed popular brands into their post-production video content. Thanks for joining me, Omar. Thanks for having me. So after we're done with this interview, I can digitally add a bunch of products to uh, the final video and I'll make a bunch of money, right? That's how this works? Uh, that, that's how it would work for our creators. That's right. Now, in this case, it's a podcast. Awesome. So uh, <laughs> It's a video podcast, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. In that case, yes. <laughs> Talk about the process. How, how does, this, how does uh, Rembrandt work for creators and brands? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about our North Star, what we're trying to emulate is something like an AdSense for virtual product placement. And the reason we're doing that is that um, what's the alternative? Today, the alternative for monetizing video is interruptive ads. And consumers just hate interruptive ads. They pay money to avoid them. And then they hit the skip button when they see them. And yep, so as soon as they can. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. We wanted to yep. go native like search went native. It started out banner ads, they ended up, you know, doing sponsored links. The problem with going native for video today is it's a total manual process. It's like two years before a movie comes out, you negotiate to get in the script and then sponsored posts is four to six weeks of back and forth, shipping product, negotiating. So that limits brands to working with just like a small sliver of the 50 million influencers in very highly negotiated deals, often with representation. So the model here says, just create your own organic content and make it so that your audience loves it and, and it's something you're passionate about. When you're done, but before you post it, put it up into our service. We will stitch in a product that looks like it was filmed in there and you will be paid by the brand for that. So the process is you're done with your video, you upload it to us, you give us some number of hours, we return a composite video with the product in it, you review it, if you like it, you post it, you get paid. Wow, it's that simple. It is indeed. There's a lot of work behind the scenes, which is... Sure, yeah, yeah. For you guys, it's not yes, simple. <laughs> that's our goal is to make it simple. So are the products kind of dynamically inserted like audio ads on a podcast or is it is it manually done? Um, it, it, let me be precise here. It is done by AI. And so what, what happens is when a product comes in, you choose an insertion point uh, for the product, which also AI will advise you what good insertion points are. And there's a lot of complexity around choosing a right point in time and place and space on where to put a video. Uh, I'm sorry, where to insert a product. And then sure. the AI does the insertion and the compositing. And I can talk about all the different aspects of that because it's quite 
quite intriguing what has to be yeah. done. I'd love uh, to hear and, it. And then, and then we return it. Um, it is not dynamic in the sense that while, while the video is running, um, we insert it in real time. Uh, it, it is done in compute time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I assume it's, it's, you talked earlier about how, as far as like brands sending products to people, it's just, it just takes longer. It's obviously costly for brands to have to ship product out. Is that kind of one of the things, another benefit for, for brands is not having to worry about that aspect of things? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, in addition to not having to ship the product, which is, you know, obviously limiting to how many people you talk to, this is seen as something that would have an order of magnitude more influences you would work with rather than a sponsored campaign. So compare this to like two different things on the left side, compare it to advertising and on the right side, compare it to sponsored posts. This is meant to look like the scale and cost of advertising at the influence and attention levels of uh, a sponsored post. So it's mixing the two. Um, so explicitly, what what do we do that an ad wouldn't do? Well, ads are interruptive. We're not. Number two is ads get skipped really quick. This could maintain attention for like 10 minutes inside of a video. So it's like long attention um, and focus uh, on the product. You wouldn't get that with an ad. But like an ad, we can run it through a campaign system and it can get scale. Um, How does this compare to a sponsored post? Sponsor post gives you influence. You're next to a culturally relevant person that your brand and audience care about. So just like sponsor post, we, we, we can do that too. Unlike a sponsor post, because you don't have to manually negotiate with a few people, and then you're asking those people to do a lot of work. You're saying, go create a video. We will distribute that video. Or if you have an organic video, interrupt your organic video for two minutes to talk about our product. And you know that's a lot of value for you, the brand, and a lot of work for the sponsor. So you pay a lot of money to get that to happen. With sure. us, um, the dynamic is a little different. You basically tell the creator, don't even think about us in creating content. Just create great content. We'll insert the product, and the brand will pay you. You don't have to do any extra work. You don't have to do an interruption. You don't have to do an ad read. Um, on the other hand, um, if you did get a two-minute ad read, yeah, maybe the brand will pay you a little bit more. So this scales more because you may end up doing one ad read and then your next four videos are organic with this technology you could just put this in all your organic videos Mm -hmm. yeah no that makes a lot of sense do creators have to have a certain size following to participate you know we we target we're pretty flexible but we tend to target um creators who have more than a hundred thousand um followers that's you know general some of our creators have millions we've had some creators that had less than a hundred thousand um but you know, early days to keep it worth everybody's time. That's what we focused on. Okay. I'm out. I'm out of the running now, Omar. I guess I can't do the product placement now. So you can take me off the list. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, what, what else can you say you were talking about? It's pretty intriguing. You, you just said before that it's pretty intriguing to know the process of how it all works. Was there, was there more that you can describe on, on, on how Rembrandt works? So if you think about what we're doing, we call it physics informed generative AI. It's different than, than two things. First of all, it's different than everybody else in the industry in the past has done this with VFX, meaning you use AI to take a video and determine where to put a product, and then you hire a whole bunch of people who take three weeks to finish up a movie and, and, and tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, we do this with AI, so it's way more automated and faster. So that's the first difference. Second difference is how are we different than kind of pure generative AI that you've seen with creative content? So stable diffusion, chat, TPT, stuff like that. 
first of all, those techniques are tend to be a little bit BDC focused, and this is B2B. Mm -hmm. uh, that's number one. But the more interesting difference is those techniques are trained on creative content, on content that is realistic and also not realistic. And so they tend to create things that look novel, and they tend to do stuff where the resolution doesn't need to be super granular. Um, whereas what we're doing needs to look like it was in the original filming. The eye can't look at it and say, oh, that's clearly fake. Mm. Like, we don't want them to say, oh, that's cool, but fake. We want them to say, yeah, that thing belonged there. Or yeah, that's not, there. Even, yeah. not even realize that it was put in virtually. Right. And so to do that, you actually, for physics-informed generative AI, we actually train the networks to understand the laws of lighting and physics and motion and um, occlusion and shadows and all of that are trained into the network itself. So it constrains and gives you something a lot more realistic. You know, those other, you know, creative forms of generative are beautiful, but they tend to have, you know, things like confabulation, hallucination, they make stuff up. Um, mm -hmm. We visually can't make stuff up. Like I saw a popular meme on LinkedIn on something that came out from, you know, one of these techniques. It was like a, a movie reel of the 1930s and two of the people in one of the scenes were connected and they had the same hand, one arm in between the two of them because that's what the, you know, AI generated. We can't do yep. stuff like that. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that prompted you to want to create Rembrandt? Oh, yeah. I think I've been, you know, thinking about this category for maybe a year, year and a half before starting Rembrandt. And that is that I noticed that the future of applications would all have manipulation of video streams with AI. And I started documenting the classes of these manipulations. So the first one is AI editing. Like, you... you you do a recording and then you're later like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. So if you could just, you know, edit the text uh, and then regenerate the audio. Mm -hmm. And then the next variant of that is translate my voice into Japanese, uh, even though I don't know Japanese. And the beauty about an application like that is, you know, if the if the AI voice to text isn't perfect, um, people actually don't know what I sound like in Japanese. So it's OK. Uh, and, and, you know, manipulating video for avatars. And I started thinking about all these different things. And I wanted to build a technology company that would offer things like this in an API form like Twilio. Um, and then I started thinking about how do we protect people from deep fakes? Because this is going to give people the capability of doing things that you don't want them to do. So how do we authenticate and start brainstorming all sorts of really, really different interesting applications. And I came to the conclusion that, okay, let me start with something that has a really strong business case in a market I understand well. Uh, and so, you know, you know, Blue Kai was, you know, deep in the marketing ecosystem. Uh, and so I wanted the marketing application. And that's when we, you know, really ran into product placement as a multi-billion dollar, very highly manual industry that's ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was the intersection of like an industry I understand with a vision on, on where AI meets streaming that I thought would be really cool. Yeah. And I, I saw that that. You know, on your website, you guys talk about how you want to give more opportunity to creators. And I think that's, I think, you know, there's some ridiculous amount of content creators out there with big followings and what a great, what a great opportunity for them to be able to monetize. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you think about the, the thing about creators is uh, talent is distributed fairly globally and um, unfortunately, opportunity is not so distributed globally. Mm -hmm. So technology yeah. like this can change that, can democratize access 
And the way we're approaching this business is, you know, we're creating a two-sided marketplace, influencers and brands. But we also have a huge number of channel partners that just want to embed what they do and have them sell to the to the uh, to the brand, not just us. So that could be any creator agency. Uh, it could be a publisher. Uh, it could be an ind- individual uh, influencer team. And so we want to make the technology available, not just through our two-sided marketplace, but in a way that other people can sell to so that we really democratize access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you've been busy throughout your career. You, you mentioned Blue Kai. You, uh, you follow, founded that, a data management company that Oracle bought in 2014, and you stayed on with them for a bit. You founded, uh, is, it, is it Voicia? Is that how yeah. you say it? Yep. Um, Enterprise Voice Assistant. Cisco bought that one in 2019. Uh, and then eventually you founded Rembrandt. Would you, would you call yourself a, a serial entrepreneur? Uh, I guess I would. I, I have to say <laughs> I just love the, the creative act of building companies. I love working with like very talented teams. Uh, and I think I'm an adrenaline junkie. So I just like the adrenaline of fast moving, you know, building stuff that people care about and enjoying it, watching it grow. I shouldn't say watch it grow because it's not quite how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I noticed that I was looking at the team that you have assembled and, and you have several people who've been with you for, from, from with other companies as well. Is there anything that, that you do intentionally to create a culture that, that makes people want to be a part of it? Yeah, I think I think being thoughtful about the culture is very important. So uh, if you look at uh, our world, I think there's like four different attributes that define our culture. And there is no right answer on culture. It's like whatever you, whatever you do that you think is important. Um, but it's important that you do have a culture because I think that's um, really what sets you apart. So the first cultural attribute that I really care about is really about you know deliver value daily or or you know get stuff done, um, and this is where startups are different than big companies because big companies will pontificate a lot about whether they should get it done, and all the scale constraints of you know is it going to be a billion dollars at day one all that kind of stuff, whereas cultures I tend to be, build always favor concrete action today. Um, over complexity that requires waiting. And then making sure that you're in a team where um, the interaction favors clarity and specificity and and knowing timelines and eliminates cross-group dependencies where possible. So we're pretty maniacal about, you know, having this done and where we see processes that, you know, people are sitting around waiting or, you know, they're they're getting dependencies across seven different groups. We, We try to get rid of that. The, the second area that we tend to focus on for us is building 10x better experiences. If you're going to go off and take a portion of your life trying to change something interesting about the world, it can't be an incremental thing. It's got to like move the needle 10x for the end customer. Um, and because once you choose that, you can make all sorts of mistakes along the way and fix them. But the category was big enough and important enough to support it. The third cultural area I think is interesting is have a very, very curious culture and always be learning and um, urge people to instead of debating how things are, test it, learn, iterate, question your some uh, assumptions, um, and, um, uh, and, and constantly seek feedback. What I don't like is kind of this model of hire great people and because they're so damn smart, just assume that they're right. 
Um, And this is a a habit I had to unlearn undergraduate. And uh, please, I don't mean to insult anybody. I I went to MIT undergrad. Wonderful place. I loved it. But one of the things I am insulted. I am insulted. (laughs) One one of the things that many of us came out of that experience with is just surround yourself by super, super smart people. That is the equation for success. And it turns out it's not really right. Because if you have a super smart person who knows how to work with others, they are magic. A super smart person who is toxic um, is, is scalably toxic. And so it, it, it's a problem. So what you need is actually the, the, this. I like that. Scalably quadrant. toxic. It's this quadrant of you know, high capability, um, low ego, and ease of working with others. That's the, the magic. You, know, you want that, that intersection to be there. And so that's why we want people who have that, that, that capability. And then the last thing we look at is find people who are multipliers, people who you want to hang out with on a Sunday. Um, uh, and, and so that's a culture I built. Uh, and there's nothing magically right about that. It's just what I guess a lot of people have enjoyed with me in the past and continue to enjoy. What, what point did you start working in AI? When I was in graduate school, um, my focus was in computer science was on AI. And I started out on the wrong type of AI. I shouldn't say that, my, my, my professors would, would kill me. Um, and it was uh, logic-based AI. It was you know using theorem provers to figure out how agents should operate together in a software domain. It was really, really cool actually. But then I started noticing you know things like Patty Mays with nearest neighbor algorithms and you know, early neural networks that had this nice aspect to them that they scaled with data. They didn't require humans to create ontologies and and express things in first order logic, which, you know, only a percentage of humanity can. And so um, uh, that's when I started getting more intrigued with that side uh, of AI. And to be fair, everything I created from AI onwards was not written by my hands. They were written by people way smarter than me. And, and way more expert in the AI domain. At what point did you get a sense that generative, generative AI was going to, to blow up? I, I don't know it was like a point in time. I, I know that the, the, this whole category, I mean, if you remember Word to Vec from Google years ago, I remember 2018, 2019, you started to see, oh, wow, that, that if you put tokens in this large, highly, highly dimensional semantic space, you could figure out which tokens were near each other and you can statistically start putting together interesting sentences and completing sentences and doing substitutions. And then after that, the next kind of thing that really interested me is when, when people started to figure out how to do these you know, unsupervised learning models or you withhold a piece of the sentence and let the, let the algorithm predict the next token. Um, and, and once you started putting concepts like that together, you're like, oh, this is so interesting. And then, of course, you know, GPT came out and then versions came out. So it wasn't it wasn't as sudden. I do think in the last few months, you know, starting in January, February, it became it exploded in the conscious of the everyday consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been boiling for a while before then. It wasn't as, as sudden as it, it seems. I saw a LinkedIn post of yours from roughly about a month ago. It read, I remain a huge fan of the potential of chat GPT, but hallucination has real ramifications. We just witnessed the world changing power that social has to spread rage and disinformation in election cycles. Now add to the mix, the ability to create fake documents that incorrectly cite sources we trust 
and we have a powder keg, which I could not agree more. Um, we just recently had a an ad, a, a Republican-led ad attacking Joe Biden with 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 AI. You know, the political campaigns are going to kick off real soon, and it's going to get. I mean, they already have, but they're going to really dominate really soon. How worried are you about the role AI could play? Yeah, as far as disinformation goes. Yeah, yeah, very worried. I mean, if you think about what happened the last election cycle, is we exploited the filter bubble. So the filter bubble basically is I get my sources from people who have very similar point of view, and I don't see enough right. of other point of views. And so disinformation comes in and, and, and creates manually a, a set of content that appeals to a pretty large filter bubble. And then they push it and the algorithms push it and rage uh, gets people to click and the algorithm loves rage and, and it just scales. Um, so that was then. Now you can afford to basically go to ChatGPT and make much smaller filter bubbles, choose much smaller filter bubbles and custom create content automatically for each filter bubble with complete disinformation that was scalably produced. That's dangerous. And I believe that's exactly what's gonna happen in this next election cycle. So the biggest thing that you can do is um, to counter the act of this is to try to create technologies and teaching for people on how to know if something uh, is real or not and how to know if it was generated by AI or not by the people who the AI cites. So for, for instance, you know, Adobe, Microsoft, New York Times, a whole bunch of people have created this content authenticity initiative for you to be able to take something like an image and be able to trace, was this manipulated or not? Was this created you know, by the person who you think it was created uh, by? And one of the kind of ideas I was prototyping before doing Rembrandt was creating a blockchain-based version of that for videos that would allow you to say, it's okay for me to use AI to manipulate my voice. That's, everybody's going to do that. Everybody's going to use filters. But let me authenticate that it was me that authorized this use and not someone else. So we need techniques like that that allow people to, to essentially know the, the chain of trust on what's manipulating things. And so when you see that chain broken, we can basically say, yeah, it's probably fake. Uh, and and I don't have the magic solution here. I think I think a lot of people need to jump on. Come on, Omar. <laughs> well, I mean, do we we're, do we have time? As a society, do we have time before this election cycle? Or are we pretty much are we pretty much uh, in for it for this one? Uh, good question. I, I'm pretty afraid of what's going to happen on this one. Um, there is still time for us to you know deploy solutions here. Um, the problem is is that you know. Uh, the solutions for scalable social and AI lies in the hands of very few countries. Um, uh, but that list is growing. So America has it, you know, China's developing it. They already have it on the social side, obviously, but they're, but they're, they're you know, creating large language models also. Different countries have access to some of these techniques and each country would use it in a way that enrages the other. So for example, there was this whole meme on TikTok um, creating this version inside of China where they basically limit the amount of exposure youth will get uh, to their v version of TikTok um, to, I don't remember the exact time, might have been like an hour or something like that. And there was a lot of rage in the United States and see, look how they're you know poisoning our kids and they keep the good stuff for themselves. I thought that was misplaced rage because we could come up with legislation that also says, you know, our kids need to have limited time. And we chose not to as a society. 
And then when we make choices as the United States, pretty much every country in the world uses what we do. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's a little bit of, you, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones going on here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so we tend to look at it from the, you know, our cultural perspective on if we have the power, it's okay. When somebody else has the power, it's not okay. I think we need to step out of that a little bit and just think think more globally on this problem. Yeah, think think globally, which is not our strong suit as a country, <laughs> usually. Um, there's obviously overall there's a there's a lot of concern among people around the globe as far as the negatives uh, AI can bring to societies. Obviously, headlines like Je- Jeffrey Hinton leaving Google due to concerns about where it's heading certainly add fuel to that fire. How, how worried should people be as a, as an overall rule? I mean, I know we talked about the the disinformation, but you know, there's a lot of concerns in other areas as well. Yeah, there are other areas. So one of the areas that had nothing to do with kind of the current generative, and it's been boiling for the last you know five ten years, is um, we tend to train these algorithms with the largest amount of data available. But data available just captures what people say, not truth, and it captures hate and attacks and just outright disinformation. And so that's what you're feeding into the algorithms. And most early AI scientists would just shrug and say, hey, that's what the data says. Why are you blaming me? Um, And so I think we've had to evolve uh, beyond that to start to say, no, you need techniques to evaluate, you know, how balanced the data is. Like, for instance, if you're training all the uh, algorithms, you know, for, you know, white males, does that, you know, disadvantage their answers for white females and for brown colored females and so on and so forth. So that was one problem that we've never really solved and we need more societal thinking about that. Um, the more recent one is the confabulation or hallucination, which happens for two reasons. One, because you feed in just d- bad data fed into an algorithm at scale will create bad answers uh, in mm-hmm. addition to good ones. Um, but also, if you produce prompts that the system has never seen before, it's told to predict. So it's just going to create shit up, including sources that are completely incorrect. So I don't know if you saw those articles on uh, from The Atlantic where they were asked about these articles where they had citations from a particular author on a particular topic. And they were completely realistic that that author would have said something close to that on that topic. And it never happened. They, but it was not real. I did see that. Yeah. Accurate um, citation to something not real. So those problems we really need to get ahead of, particularly if they're coming out of search engines that you trust to produce good answers. That's a good point too, because people people trust, you know, certain things a little too much, uh, you know, and but but when someone puts something into Google, they think what they're getting is true, like they do. Yeah. <laughs> we we all do it, you know. What I mean, right. we all do it. We our research show it comes back with something. We're like, oh well, it must be true. I saw it on on the Google machine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so it's a problem. Being as close to AI as you are, what what is the most exciting and promising thing you've seen in regards to the, the, the positive impact that AI can have? Well, first of all, it is saving immense amount of times for people in a domain we didn't think AI would save in, which is in the creation step. We always looked at it as, yeah, you have to feed in data for things that people understand. And, and they didn't realize, I think that's why people are so shocked and scared is now it can help you create things. And um, in the main, that's a good thing because you spend a lot of time um, in all sorts of tasks having the equivalent of a writer's block. I, I want to do something, but I don't know where to start. Um, and I this can relate you. to that for sure. <laughs> right? It, it, you seed something and it gives you a very plausible start, which you should edit and make your own. 
Um, I think that's going to save humanity huge amounts of time in so many doma- domains. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty bullish about that. I'm bullish about you know what we're doing because what we're doing takes it into the realm of video, which makes it uh, which is hard, right? Uh, to do the kinds of things we would do would you know take take weeks, and and now you can do these things in you know computation time, which mm-hmm. you know hours or minutes, and uh, eventually it'll get to to real time. Um, and if you think of kind of where I'm thinking of things like virtual product placement, where does it start to go? Well, it's kind of interesting. There's a um, uh, there, there's an evolution of this. When we started virtual product placement, people you know before us were using VFX techniques to be able to uh, edit videos. Now AI can do it. Um, but what's interesting is now we might also combine the AI with animation to give you a little bit of motion. Um, we're going to get more sophisticated with with the the types of videos, like with moving cameras, with you know scene that looks more professional, like like movie type content. Um, we're going to start to be able to target. So one person will see you know a um, one person will see a kind bar sitting on the desk, and the other person you know might see you know a Pepsi can sitting on the desk. So targeting, so different people see different products, um, and uh, over different periods of time. And then we might even get to the point where there's interaction between the the people in the video and the product that wasn't there at the time of filming. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm pretty excited about you know the, the the amount of innovation that's still left here. How close are we? Do you think to something like an auto GPT? Like uh, like how close am I to being able to just type in, you know, I want to go to California, book book everything for me. Oh, so I think the issue with that is we need some research before it really gets to the point where you're doing trusted transactions. We're going to have to, um, there's two types of AI that have stayed orthogonal, and I think they, they can't stay orthogonal. So one type was this more logically constrained thing, which says to book a trip to AI, I understand, I'm sorry, to book a trip to California. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can tell where my brain is. To book a trip yeah, to I was going to say, it's just on your mind a little bit, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, I need to have an understanding of time, calendaring, I need to have an understanding of dependencies. I need a plane, hotel, uh, rental car, uh, order of events, um, price ranges, preferences. Mm-hmm. And it, so, so there's things that, in, that, that are represented in a logical world that are, that are curated and, and treated more like what you would treat in a, uh, in a logical system or a database or knowledge management platform. And those things don't scale very well because you need humans to craft them, but they're few and important and it's okay to have humans craft them. Um, and that applies to all sorts of domains like travel and medicine and stuff like that, where you actually want that level of oversight and, and expert human crafting. And then there's the, the you know, data-driven ability to hallucinate um, uh, chat GPT type uh, software. And those have not met yet. They've saved separate. Um, in order for us to do things where there are trusted and um, highly important consequential transactions, I think the two need to meet. And there's still research need to be done. I think you know Bard is a little bit closer to thinking that way than uh, uh, than Bing, but I I think Bing and, and um, ChatGPT are a little bit ahead of head on the popularity and use. So it's still a question whether uh, Bard is going to succeed with its approach or not. But we need more things like that that attempt to constrain problems. Our whole things with physics-informed generative AI is to train the constraints of physics into the network in the first place, which allows us to do things that are photorealistic, um, but it prevents us from doing things that are completely fantastical and novel. For that, you would use the other techniques. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've I haven't played a ton with Bard, but I felt like I got a lot more. I felt like I had better quality answers from ChatGPT than I did from Bard. Yeah, I'm mean, like I said, ChatGPT is ahead in terms of volume, in terms of popularity, yeah. in terms of you know people going to. It. So kudos to to Microsoft for being super visionary on that relationship with, uh, with OpenAI. It was transformative for them. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> Most people are like, "What is Bing?" <laughs> it's amazing what they did. Oh, it really is. It's incredible. As as a successful entrepreneur, uh, what advice do you have for aspiring founders looking to make a a, a positive impact in the world of uh, AI and tech? Go deep in in either or both the technology area and as an uh, entrepreneur, really understand your customer set. Um, don't be fooled by people with you know hammers looking for for nails. Um, really understand the domain you're disrupting. So. Uh, and give yourself time as an entrepreneur to become an expert in those things. Don't rush yourself. Like w- once you have sufficient expertise, you can go very, very fast. Um, you know, uh, having shallow expertise and, and trying to get other people to help you figure out what to do. It's, it's uh, more painful than you think. Uh, that's the first one. Second one is team, 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 have awesome people. Um, but make sure you let those people flourish. Don't be, uh, don't don't assume you're you're the best at doing everything that doesn't scale and you will not be able to keep awesome people um i don't know probably a, a few more uh i i would say there but uh they're more along the lines of the cultural conversation we had we had before on that cultural note though we were talking about microsoft uh, a while ago yeah um a previous version of microsoft was more insular and wanted to build everything itself inside and stop looking outside as much. You know, when Satya came in, he shaked up that culture and brought back this curiosity and willingness to to basically say ideas are also generated outside the building. Um, ah. and they, they made some acquisitions that were tremendous, like, you know, LinkedIn investments like um, OpenAI, um, you know, embracing the open source movement, which again, acknowledges that there are brains outside of the building. So, uh, you know, getting these cultural aspects right is, are, are, are amazing. Yeah, and and probably not super easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, final question. If you could travel back in time, have a conversation with your younger self, what piece of wisdom or advice would you share based on your experiences and, and, and knowledge that you've gained? Um, take your time. You're, you're going to do j- just fine and take care of the people around you. And um, they will, th- that, that will always pay off in spades. And, um, I, I think that's uh, that that if if I could have accelerated that learning earlier, I, it would have been awesome. Well, the website is rembrand.com. Creators and brands can sign up for the beta to give it a go. Uh, anything else they should know if they want to check it out? If you're on the brand side and um, willing to you know do a test, we'd we'd love to work with you. We're working with some very uh, forward thinking and large brands some have invested in us so look us up if you're if you're a brand if you're uh an influencer we'd love to work with you also jump on the wait list give us a holler uh this is just a very fast moving exciting time so we're here and would love to talk well i'm gonna work on getting uh uh ninety nine thousand nine <laughs> more followers and then i'll <laughs> I'll reach out. <laughs> awesome. We'd love to work with you. Well, and you have a very valuable set of followers because they're, you know, in a, in a B2B domain in a sense. Sure. So yeah. It's very, it's very niche. Yeah. Numbers. 
That helps. That helps. I appreciate the pep talk. (laughs) Omar, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. It was great talking to you. And thanks to everyone watching and listening. Until next time, stay curious, stay creative.